Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. As I said a moment ago, last week we kicked off our year in the greatest commandment. And if you missed it, this simply means that we're going to spend the next 12 months diving deeply into what Jesus said is of ultimate importance. So if you don't remember the story we talked about, it's basically these religious leaders were all around Jesus when he was here on earth, and and one of them said, what what is the most important commandment in the law? There were 613 commandments in the Jewish law, and so they were asking, Jesus, narrow it down for us. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. What What is like of most, of most importance? And he said, love God and love others. So that's what we're going to do. For the next year, we're going to dive deeply into what it means to love God and what it means to love others. And and in the fall, we're really kind of focusing in on this love God piece, this first part. Now, there's a temptation to jump into the fall with a series, right, on how to love God or what our lives should look like when we love God. But, But there's just one big problem with that. Scripture tells us that any love we have whether it's for God or for others, actually comes from God himself. This is what it says. We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. This is the foundation upon which the greatest commandment is built. We can only love God and love others when we understand and embrace the love God has for us. Does that make sense? Give me a nod if that makes sense. So that's where we're going to start. We begin a series this morning called He First Loved Us. This will be a five-week journey through the big story of the Bible, looking at the unwavering love God has for us, that he has for humanity, from before creation all the way through the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to trace this relentless, unwavering love he has for us. And we're doing this because here at Restore, we truly believe that there is nothing more important than understanding the love God has for us. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built. The Apostle Paul, who is attributed with writing most of the New Testament in our Bibles and starting churches all over the place in the first century, felt the same way. I want you to listen to this prayer that he prayed over a church family in a town called Ephesus. Here's what it says. I pray that you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. That was Paul's prayer for his church family. It's my prayer too. It's my prayer for my wife. It's my prayer for my kids. It's my prayer for each and every one of you. And it's my prayer for every single person on earth. Honestly, this is why we started a church. This is why we play our welcome video every week. Because we want everyone to know 
that no matter their age, race, gender, sexual orientation, lifestyle, income, or anything else about them, no matter who you are or what you've done, you are deeply and completely loved by God. And when you really get this, I mean when you really start to understand just how wide and how long and how high and how deep and how relentless God's love is for you, it changes everything. It changes everything because, listen, here's the thing. We will live our lives based on who we think God is. We will make decisions based on who we think God is. You see, if God is vindictive and oppressive and just perpetually angry with us, we will live in fear. We will make decisions based on that fear of trying not to upset this this angry, on-edge deity. Or we will just say, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm just going to walk away. We will live our lives based on who we think God is. And so if God is love, fear will be driven out of our lives and we will live in that love. That's exactly what John goes on to say in his letter we read from a moment ago. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Y'all, God isn't vindictive. He isn't oppressive. He doesn't punish us. In fact, as we walk through this series over the next few weeks and look through the journey of Scripture, we'll see that he consistently steps in to take our punishment on himself rather than have us experience it. That's who God is. That's our God. God is love. And that changes everything. But there's a danger. There's a danger in in just dropping the phrase God is love and not really taking time to explain what it means. And that danger lies in the fact that so many of us have different experiences and understanding of both God and love. Are you with me? If, if I surveyed this room and asked you what comes into your mind when you think about God or what comes into your mind when you think about love, we would have as many pictures as we have people in these chairs. We are different people with different experiences. Some of you are sitting here this morning thinking that the God I just described, the one that I said was vindictive and angry and oppressive, sounds a lot like the God you've always heard about, the God you've experienced, maybe the God you've been told about from people who called themselves Christians. Then there are others of you in here that that you don't believe in God at all. Maybe it's because you you really can't wrap your mind around how the things you've learned about science and the world can coexist with God. Or maybe you used to believe in God, but, but the church hurt you, or the church told you you couldn't belong because of something about you, and so you left. Or maybe it's because you've just never really understood how God and evil can coexist in the world. And since you've seen evil but you've never really seen God, you've decided that God must not exist. That's some of y'all. But there are others of you in here, too, that have had some really bad experiences with love, right? Some of you were abused by someone who was supposed to love you and take care of you. Some of you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife who told you that they loved you and told you they were devoted to you, but then you found out later they were telling someone else that same thing. Or maybe love has just always meant pleasure for you, something that you pursued with everything you have. You chase after the things you love, you acquire them, you use them up, and then you move on to the next thing. We all have different understandings of God and different understandings of love. So if we want to embrace the truth 
that God is love, we have to start by understanding exactly what that means. And I think that means breaking down this phrase word by word and asking three questions. The first one is, who is God? What's he like? What's he about? The second one is, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah, anybody? And the last one, to paraphrase a former president of the United States, what is the meaning of is? These are the three questions that we're going to ask this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time together collectively and biblically attempting to understand these three words. God is love. You ready? Give me a yeah or not, or or that's even better. Okay, here we go. First one, who is God? The first thing we need to do before answering this question is admit that we can't really do so completely, okay? (laughs) As we have to just start there in humility and say, he is God and we are not. He is more complex than we could ever understand. He is the creator. We are the creation. If we could fully define and understand God, we would be God. But we are not. He is God. But what we can do is we can look at the Bible, we can use our brains, and we can do our best. So that is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the Bible, we're going to use our brains, we're going to do our best to answer the question, who is God? Now the Bible teaches that God is both three and one. He is both three and one. The common word for this is Trinity. In fact, and we just sang holy, 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 one of the last lines, right, is about the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you go on our website and look at our belief statement, you will find this explanation. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, eternally existing in three equal persons, Father, Son, that is Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to say the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, but we see examples of it all throughout Scripture. And I think the clearest comes when Jesus is baptized in chapter 3 of Matthew's account of his life. Here's what it says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, remember he's the son, right? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. You see, you have the son coming up out of the water, you have the spirit descending down, you have the father's booming voice saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, one God Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there are lots of classic examples used to explain the concept of the Trinity, but like most metaphors, they all kind of fall apart when you take them to their logical conclusion. In fact, I remember sitting in a class in seminary one time, and on the first day, it was a class called Trinitarianism. It was all about the Trinity. And on our first day, our professor asked us to share metaphors we'd heard to describe the Trinity. So here are some that came out. First one was an egg. Right? So you got one egg, but there's a, a shell and a yolk and an egg white inside of it, right? So one and three, yeah? The next was a pretzel. So you have kind of, it's all conjoined, but there are like three compartments in a pretzel. That's probably the worst one, to be honest. <laughs> there's an apple. You've got the skin, you've got the flesh, you've got the seeds, kind of the same idea as the egg. Uh, actually, back in the fifth century, a guy named St. Patrick popularized the shamrock as a, trini- as a, a metaphor for the trinity. Right, you got one leaf, three leaves, one, I don't know, one plant, three, I don't know. I'm not Irish, so I can't really <laughs> explain all of that. An- another great example, and I think this is one of the best ones, is, is H2O, right? So it can exist in a solid or liquid or gas form, right? But it's all kind of H2O, that's, that's a pretty good example. So all of us are sitting in the class, we're all throwing out these different examples, and my professor kind of nodded through all of them, like, yeah, those are all pretty good. 
And then he said, all of your examples are both orthodox and heretical. All of them are both orthodox and heretical. And if you aren't familiar with those old religious terms, he was saying all the metaphors we've used to describe the Trinity are both right and wrong at the same time. And that's because, like I said a moment ago, if he is truly God and creator of all things, we aren't going to be able to figure him out completely. But our best explanation, one that Christians have unified around for thousands of years, even if we've explained it a little differently, or even if we've used different examples to show what it means, is the Trinity. That's what we have united around. That's what's in all of our our creeds and statements since the very first church. So who is God? He is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the answer to our first question. The next one, what does is mean? Now, you might laugh because, like, is this really a question that we need to answer? But the word is is actually really vital here because it tells us two incredibly important things. Number one, it tells us that when it comes to God, love is not just a verb. Love is a noun. When it comes to God, love is not just a verb. Love is a noun. Love isn't just what he does. It's who he is. That's important, right? He doesn't just love us. He is love. That's the first thing. The second thing, it also tells us that God is love right now in this very moment. God didn't become love at some point. God is love and has always been love. Even before the creation of the world, God was love. That's what is means here. So we have our God who is three in one, Father, Son, Spirit, who doesn't just love as an action, but is love in his very identity. And this didn't happen recently. God is and always has been love. Not if you're with me. God is. We got so far. One more to go. So the last question we are left with is, what is love? And to answer this question, we need to understand a little bit about the culture and context of the New Testament, when this was written, when Jesus walked the earth. And if you've been around church for a while, you probably know that most of the New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And if you've been around the church for a long while or done some deeper study, you probably know that Greek has four different words for love. They're mostly always just translated love in our English Bibles, but knowing which one can really help illuminate a passage like this for us. Because see, you and I, we use love for everything, right? We love pizza, we love our mom, we love our spouse, Uh, we love the way that it like feels in here, it's so cold, it's hot outside, I just love it in here. You know, like that, we use the same word all the time for love. But in Greek, there are four different ones. And like I said, if you understand which one is used, it actually really illuminates what it means when we say God is love. So the first one is phileo. You may have heard of this. It's a a sibling kind of love, a, a friendship love. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, which means the city of brotherly love. That's the kind of love that's love between siblings. The second one is storge. And this is a love that kind of come naturally, right? It's something that you can't help like the food that you really love or, or the sports team that you really love and you really follow. Hook them yesterday. That's the first two, phileo and storge. And the third one is actually the most common one, and it is eros. It's where we get the word erotic. This is love based on attraction. It's usually a, a fleeting and misleading kind of love. Sometimes it's sexual, sometimes it's not. But it's just like I can get something that I need from this thing, and so I'm going to love it until I use it all up, and then I'm going to move on to the next cool, awesome thing, and I'm going to love that for a while. That's eros. 
Phileo, Storge, and Eros all have something in common. Each of them say, I want the highest, I want the best, I want the most beautiful, I want it now, and I want it for myself. That's what those loves are about. And when you love like this, you are constantly evaluating what you love to determine if it really is the highest and best and most beautiful. That's why people in our society often say that they fall in and out of love. It's because when you love like this, your love is fickle. Because you're constantly evaluating it. You're constantly saying, is this person, is this thing that I love really the best? Is it really the highest? Is it really the most beautiful? And if it's not, then I don't have to love that thing anymore. I can go love something else. If someone with this kind of love finds something else to be the highest and most beautiful and best, they quickly leave their old love behind for whatever is new and shiny in the moment. This is self-focused love. But there's one more word for love, and it's called agape. And agape is, by far, the least commonly used word for love in the first century culture. It is also the deepest and noblest kind of love, and I think maybe those two things go together. It is self-sacrificing. It is completely devoted to the object of love. This love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, or seemingly unlovable. This is unconditional love. Guess which word is used in these verses to describe our God who is love? Agape. God loves us. Not because we like stirred something in his heart, not because he looked down and he thought they are the best and most beautiful and most worthy of my love. He loves us because he is love. And he's chosen to love us even when we don't love him back even when we actively push against his love, even when we turn like Jonah or like the prodigal son and we run away from his love, he pursues us with his love. That's agape love. So when we say God is love, here's what we mean. The Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, have always been and will always be unconditionally loving toward each other and toward humanity. Not just as an action, but as God's core identity and defining characteristic. That's what God is love means. And again, this isn't anything new. The Trinity's agape love didn't begin when humanity came along. This is the love that has existed in perfection among the Trinity since before the foundation of the universe. There's this beautiful passage of scripture that conveys this truth from chapter 17 of John's account of Jesus' life. It records a conversation between the Trinity as Jesus the Son talks to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying for those who follow him, then his disciples, but it's also for us now and forever. Anyone who follows Jesus, he's praying. And here's what he says. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Just pause on that for a second. 
The Father, the way the Father loves the Son is the same way that he loves you and I. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. The glory you have given me, listen, because you loved me before the creation of the world. This perfect agape love has existed in and among the Trinity since before the creation of the world. That's what Jesus says right here. Now stay with me because the implications of this are so, so important. So picture with me the Trinity existing before the creation of the world. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. They exist in this atmosphere of ever-loving, self-sacrificing, perfect agape love. It's not just what they do, it's who they are. And as they exist in this community of perfect agape love, they decide as one to make us humanity in their image. That's what it says in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I don't know if you noticed in that very first little part, it said, then God said, let us make mankind. So it's the Trinity there talking amongst themselves. Let us make mankind in our image. So listen, play this out logically with me for a second. If God is love and we are made in the image of God, it logically concludes that we were created out of the overflow of God's agape love. We were birthed out of the perfect love of the Trinity. How incredible is that? That's our identity. When, when you start struggling about thinking like who you are and what you've done and, and people start defining you in some way that like really puts you down or really brings shame and guilt, just remember that you and I were created out of the perfect love of God. But it gets even better. Not only were we made in the image of our God who is love, and not only were we birthed out of that agape love, we've been invited back into it. We've been invited back into that perfect agape love that is shared between the Father and Son and Spirit. That's what Jesus just prayed in the passage we just looked at. Look at it with me again. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Just as the Father and Son and Spirit are one, may humanity also be one with God. We are being invited into the mutual, ever-giving atmosphere of agape love that exists and has existed through the Trinity since the creation of the world. And you may be thinking that this all sounds like a little out there, right? Like, this is a little too good to be true. It's a little far-fetched, really. Like, we're birthed out of the created, you know, created out of the love of God, and we're invited back into the love of God. Have you spent much time in the world, Zach? It's not really like that out here, you know? How is that even possible? Let me tell you. It's possible through the most unheralded member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
See, when we say yes to the invitation to share in the agape love relationship that God is offering, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, comes to dwell in us. This truth is all over the Bible. In fact, it launched the very first church in Acts 2 after Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what it says. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you know the story, Peter goes out into the streets and he starts preaching about the love of God and how incredible it is. And 3,000 more people are given the Holy Spirit and filled with him. It goes on, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you realize that all of you together are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? 1 Corinthians 6.17 and 19. The person who is joined to the Lord is one with him in spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is what we mean when we say God is love. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, have always been and will always be unconditionally loving toward each other and toward humanity. Not just as an action, but as God's core identity. Love is God's defining characteristic. And we were created out of the overflow of that love and then invited back into it. And not in some second-class way. Not as like lower-tier participants in God's love. We have been invited into the agape love of God as full participants through the Holy Spirit. I want to say that again, and I want, you to just, I want you to just soak in it for a few seconds. You and I were created out of the overflow of the Trinity's sacrificial, perfect, agape love. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's what we're made of. Like our, our, our very, like, molecules, our, our bones, our spirits. We are made of God's love. That is what he used to put us all together. And it wasn't just that. He didn't just do that and then set us out and say, good luck. He invites us back in to that relationship of love through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are full participants in the agape love of God at the invitation of the Father by the work of the Son, through the power of the Spirit. That's good news, you guys. That's really, really good news. And like I said earlier, this good news is everywhere in Scripture. But I think my favorite one is back where we started this morning, and it's where we're going to end. 1 John 4. It says this. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. This 
agape love of God that we have been created out of and invited back into is the foundation for every single part of the Christian life. If you want to agape love God or you want to agape love anyone else, it starts with understanding the fact that God first loved us. And I want you to know that no matter who you are or what you've done or what you've been told, full participation in the agape love of God is available for you. Full participation. There may be places in your life where people look at you like you are second class or that you matter less because of something about you, because of how much money you have, because of your job. But the God and creator of the universe, in your eyes, excuse me, in his eyes, you are first class. You are first class. He loves you with that unfailing agape love. Not because you're cool, not because you did something that deserves it, not because he owes you because you did something for him, it's because it's who he is. He is love. And if you've never experienced it fully, if you've never said yes to that invitation to participate in the agape love of God, I'm telling you that thing that you're feeling in you right now is an invitation to experience it. And I'm telling you this because I love you and not because I'm, I'm judgy or I'm a hater or anything like that. I'm telling you this because I love you. I have experienced the full participation in the agape love of God and there is nothing like it. There's nothing like it. To know at the end of the day, when I rest my head on the pillow, no matter how many times I've jacked up that day, no matter how many times I've let people down, no matter how bad I was in front of all of you on a Sunday morning, when I lay my head down on the pillow, I know that I am a first-class citizen in the family of God. I am a full participant in his love, and that there is nothing I can do to change the way he feels about me, that he's coming after me with that love. I want it for you. If you've never had it, I want it for you. We're going to pray, and we're going to end this morning with a song called Anthem. This is a beautiful song. We've, we've sung a few times, and Taylor picked it, and it was just perfect for what we were talking about this morning. But before we do, I want to let you know that I'm just going to be standing right over there, off to the side, back by the curtains, if during this song, or if after we all wrap up and everybody else goes upstairs and gets coffee and donuts and leaves, I will stay here as long as you want to talk to you about this love that God has for you. Especially if you've never experienced it, or maybe you did, but you're not really living in it right now. If that's you, man, if that's you, let's talk because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your clarity this morning. Thank you that you have
God, you have many characteristics. That you are just, that you are merciful, you are peaceful. But there's really only one that's a noun. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. You are love. And your plan for us, for each of us, is to know that we were made, created, birthed out of that love, and then to know that we have been invited back in to participate with Father, Son, and Spirit in that love. And that it's not about jumping through a bunch of hoops, it's not about keeping 613 laws. It's about just opening up our arms and saying, I need it, I want it. Fill me with your love, God. So I pray for anyone in here who has never done that, or for anyone in here who has done it, but maybe is just not living in it day to day, that you would remind their hearts of the sweetness of living life in your love. And they would take a step, whether a first step or a step back into living life in your love. We pray that in Jesus' name.